Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. Young people in Baltimore are facing more and more trauma, but health experts are looking at ways to introduce practices that could have an impact on their future. Today on the Free to Be More podcast, we talked to Dr. Tamar Mendelson, director of the Center for Adolescent Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, about one program that's showing promise. Dr. Tamar Mendelson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yes. For people who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing now and how you got into this field? Absolutely. So I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, but then I shifted direction. So during my clinical internship, I was working at a public sector hospital in San Francisco, and I worked with clients who were living in poverty and coping with really serious adversity and trauma. And at that point, I realized that the training that I'd had in my clinical psychology program really wasn't adequate for addressing a lot of the needs of my clients. And I started to get really interested in understanding prevention. How can we reach people before maybe they get to the point where they have a mental health disorder? And also just all of the structural and social determinants of mental health. So I was fortunate to be able to do a fellowship called the Robert Wood Johnson Health and Society Scholars Program that really exposed me to public health for the first time. And from there, I came to the Department of Mental Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in 2006. So the work that I've done since then is really public mental health research. A lot of my work is adapting and testing interventions that promote mental health for students in schools, including mindfulness and yoga. And since 2018, I've been director of the Center for Adolescent Health, which is a CDC-funded prevention research center. And so our mission is really to promote adolescent health equity and wellness with a particular commitment to Baltimore. Mm -hmm. What are some of those projects that you work on in the Center for Adolescent Health? I think it's so important to take a look at mental health and say mental health for adults can be very different than it is for mental health for youth or teens. Absolutely. One of our core projects is in partnership with Baltimore's Promise, Baltimore City Schools, and the Mayor's Office of Employment Development. Those three organizations or sectors have partnered around an initiative called Grads to Careers, which is a really exciting initiative that enrolls young people graduating from city schools who are not intending to go to college into job training programs that have on-site mental health supports and legal supports. So the center is helping to look at how young people's mental health is associated with their engagement with this program, and then also how young people's mental health and other outcomes look over time through their participation and beyond. So that's one program. I also have done a lot of school-based work around promoting mental health. So most recently, our team tested a trauma-informed intervention called RAP Club for eighth grade students, and we're just wrapping that up. 
I'm fascinated about RAP. So tell me what RAP stands for and exactly what was done during that testing phase. Yeah, so RAP actually stands for Relax, Be Aware, and Do a Personal Rating, which is one of the core skills in the program. We adapted this program actually many years ago through community-based participatory work with young people. So the program was adapted from a treatment called SPARKS, which stands for Structured Psychotherapy for Adolescents Responding to Chronic Stress. It's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> the young people really felt like this really spoke to them as something that was an approach really geared toward young people who are growing up in urban areas where there may be a lot of community violence and other kinds of stress and trauma to deal with. So we adapted the program as a prevention program. We included co-facilitation by young people from the Baltimore community and we went through process of, you know, adapting it for schools, getting input from students. They said, wait, it's too boring. We went back and we, you know, jazzed it up a bit more and um, got to a place where we think that it works really well. And we did a pilot study where we saw that teachers were reporting that students who participated in rap club showed significant gains in their academic performance, their classroom behavior, and their social competence. So from there, we got funding to do a larger scale trial across 29 Baltimore City schools with eighth grade students. And what we saw is that students who participated in this program had reduced trauma symptoms at the four-month follow-up, particularly for boys, interestingly, we also had this, you know, unexpected pandemic hit us, right, sort of after we had already done this intervention. And we went back to the young people and we wanted to understand what their experience was. And 150 out of our 615 participants did surveys and interviews with us that actually showed that the program had a protective effect during the pandemic for them. So, Students who didn't participate had increased anxiety during the pandemic, but those who were part of RAP Club did not. And we saw a similar pattern for depressive symptoms, although it wasn't statistically significant. So it was exciting to us that, you know, this program actually may have helped give young people some tools and skills that helped them out during the pandemic. What would like a typical day at rap club look like? Like what are some of the things that were taught to kids? Like it's easy to tell somebody to be relaxed, but like right. what cool, <laughs> yeah. what's that toolkit that you were able to really give them while in the amount of time that they were part of the club? Yeah, so rap club is a mix of mindfulness skills and cognitive behavioral skills like around communication and problem solving. And there's also some psychoeducation about the effect of stress and trauma on the body and the brain. So we try to make it very interactive, right? So a lot of experiential stuff rather than just talking at young people. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of mindfulness, we start each session with a brief sort of mindful exercise or practice where everyone sort of sits and breathes and then checks in on a thermometer in terms of how stressed they feel just to get people into the habit of checking in with themselves. 
But to show how mindfulness is about being in the moment, there's also some like goofy games of, you know, throwing a ball and making sounds and really trying to stay in the moment and be present without having all kinds of judgments. So things like that to kind of help people experience skills rather than just sort of hearing them in a lecture. We also have a popular activity showing the effect of stress on the body where the students who volunteer have to get into raincoats because it involves shaking up soda bottles and having it explode to show what happens when you don't use skills to manage stress that's building up. Mm-hmm. Why um, the eighth grade level? Why is that such a really important time to reach students before maybe they're going into high school as they're facing? I'm sure stress just increases after that. Absolutely. So eighth grade is really key because it's that transition point before students enter high school. And so we wanted to kind of equip kids with tools that would help them feel confident about making that transition. We know that, you know, ninth grade is a really important year for determining how young people do in high school. So we felt like eighth grade was a good time to start that preparation. We also found that when we piloted the program, we tried it out with sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, and the eighth graders just liked it the most. I think it was just the most at their level developmentally, and so we also felt like it was just a good fit that way. Summer Break Baltimore is back at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Sign up at any Pratt location and receive a free book to take home and prizes every month in June, July, and August. Log activities with the Summer Break Baltimore scratch-off card to be entered into a weekly raffle. Summer Break Baltimore runs June 1st to September 1st. More information at prattlibrary.org. What happens to and what are the dangers when you have preteens who are in that age group who have seen that level of trauma? I mean, You talk about the improvements in the students that participated in RAP, but what are some of their peers facing that didn't get to participate in the program? Yeah, so unfortunately, many young people are exposed to trauma, and we know that's even more true for young people growing up in communities of concentrated disadvantage and poverty. And what happens is that for young people, the developing brain and stress response system is affected by trauma. So our bodies have really clear and effective ways to respond to trauma, the fight or flight mechanism, right? Like we gear up so we can run away, we can stay and fight. And that's really effective. But what happens is that if that mechanism is stays, you know, switched on over a long period of time, it can result in some long-term problems. So even though it's adaptive, over the long term, you start to see that there can be negative social, emotional, and behavioral effects. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see this show up in a number of ways. So young people may experience sort of hypervigilance. They're really on edge all the time. They're looking for danger. And and that's appropriate, right? If they're growing up in a dangerous environment. They Mm -hmm. also sometimes feel numb if they've been in that state for a really long time. And there may be trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, memory can be affected. Um, All of this makes it much harder to, you know, sit in math class and actually take things in. And we also see that there can be interpersonal impacts So it can be hard to trust other people, um, easier to perceive threats. And all of this can impact how young people are able to form relationships moving forward. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of that is very cyclical, I feel like. Like families experience violence. Maybe you see your parents who are victims of trauma. You yourself have lost people to trauma. How do we sort of break that cycle of those behaviors, starting with our young people and then hopefully growing it throughout the entire community? Yeah, so that's a huge and really important question. So I do think, you know, the good news is that healing is possible and there are many ways that people can heal and, you know, become even stronger from the adversity that they experience. I think part of what's complicated is that communities are experiencing trauma at a structural level, you know, and I think that's really baked in in our country from the origins of our country, you know, in terms of conquering indigenous people and enslavement of African people. And so I think that what we see is that there's really profound, long-lasting trauma that occurs sort of historically, racially, and at a community level. And so if we're going to heal from that trauma, I think it's really important that we recognize sort of those structural forces and really think about how to dismantle those and how to, you know, really bring about healing on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. You're involved in the Elijah Cummings Healing Cities Act. Talk to me a little bit about what your involvement looks like and what it means to you to be involved in something that's sort of a healing that's actually been legally mandated. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I applied to be on the Trauma-Informed Care Task Force, partly because I just was so thrilled that something like this is happening. I mean, it's a completely unique situation, like you said, that trauma-informed care is being legislated in a city. And I am just really, really honored that I get to be a part of this incredible group. It's really an amazing group. Many folks with lived experiences, with deep expertise in the Baltimore community. The group includes young people. So I'm hopeful about what this group can accomplish and what, you know, I think the idea is really to have a community movement of healing that goes beyond the task force. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like because of the way it's being done, like you spoke about how one of the ways that we heal a city is really looking at the structural part of it, which is not necessarily the part that you're involved in, but is it inspiring to sort of see legally laws being changed and, you know, on the medical side, the kind of work you're doing, kind of being able to see healing through so many different lenses. Absolutely. And the the task force has different subcommittees. And so there is a group working on policy recommendations, a group working on how to integrate trauma-informed approaches and healing into healthcare a group working with youth leadership, and then a group working on decolonizing practices. So there's a lot of different sort of lenses and approaches that are happening. Mm -hmm. I want to take a look at the national picture a little bit right now. And it is a little depressing, honestly, to see across the U.S. uh, the amount of mental health issues with young people, specifically teenagers, has really shot up with depression and self-harm and suicide and things like that. What do you really attribute that to and what can be done to reverse that trend? Yeah, so 
I think what I would say is that mental health among young people has been a key issue for a long time. But I think only recently, particularly with the COVID pandemic, we're seeing much more of a spotlight on it and more public awareness around the issue. And certainly um, the pandemic has impacted the mental health of young people. Um, many young people have lost parents, have gone through other traumas or just, you know, the stresses we've all encountered. But I think it's important to recognize that this is not a new issue and that the mental health care system in our country has not been adequately reaching and addressing young people. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it's studies like yours that are able to kind of show what can move the needle and what needs to happen when it comes to mental health for teens and young people? Yeah, so I think part of what inspired me to move away from clinical psychology into public mental health was this promise that, you know, can we actually work with systems that serve youth to embed mental health supports within those systems and actually reduce the number of people who would need more intensive one-on-one -on -one services? So I hope that one day our country moves toward a more of a prevention orientation instead of only funding treatment. And certainly we have great treatments and we need more treatments and we need better service delivery models. But I think in addition, thinking ahead in terms of mental health promotion and prevention of problems from an early age is super important. And schools are a great place to do that. So I mm -hmm. think that the more that we can move toward models where we have funding for K-12 programming that really addresses social-emotional growth and mental health promotion, that I think would go a long way toward reducing the number of young people who need uh, more intensive services. Mm -hmm. You talked about RAP being in um, 20 some odd schools here in Baltimore City. Is the idea to be able to expand that? Is the study over? Um, what is sort of like the overarching goal of that program? So we worked with 29 city schools for the study that was funded, but the study is now over and I am communicating with city schools leadership in the hopes that we would be able to integrate this program into schools moving forward. One of the big issues in the field is that we often develop programs that seem to work very well, but then they sit on the shelf because it's so difficult to get them into the real world and kind of embed them, you know, in these systems like schools in a sustainable way. And so I think that's really the next key challenge is how can we take what we've learned about how to promote mental health and really make it work for people so that people are actually benefiting. Mm -hmm. What is like in your ideal world, what kind of impact do you hope this research has? Is it something like mindfulness is just something that is not even thought about, it's just integrated into all school curriculum, something like that? I would love to see that. Absolutely. I think that mindfulness can also be helpful in creating a certain kind of climate that's conducive to learning. So rather than just pulling kids out of one sixth grade classroom and offering it, having teachers, administrators, and all students experience these practices can create a more supportive climate. But of course, you need the right training, right, and the right oversight for that to happen. And similarly to programs like the one I've talked about, I think there is tremendous potential to actually integrate these into school practices so that it is part of 
health class or part of gym class to have, you know, these, these different sorts of approaches. Mm -hmm. And I guess that comes down to, to also having the right experts in school who can sort of appropriately teach those practices, right? Absolutely. And I think part of what, you know, prevention scientists and people who deal with healing work in schools, part of what we think about is who should deliver this program? How should this be done? Is this something that teachers could be trained to do? Is this something that mental health professionals in schools can deliver? Is this something that outside experts should come in and do? Or even is this something that can be offered online? So there's all kinds of modalities. And I think we need to be creative. We need to think outside the box. And ultimately, we need to make this something that schools really want because it helps them and not like one more thing to add to the plate because they are so strapped and busy. Oh my goodness. Yes. And I wonder, how, did you see, and you may have covered this already, but did you see anecdotally or through the actual schools as a whole, did they say like, hey, disciplinary problems are down, like stuff like that? Were they seeing that impact at like a greater level rather than an individual level? We did focus groups with teachers and interviews with teachers, and they did talk about benefits that they were seeing in the students, which was really encouraging. I mean, I think that you know, almost everyone we spoke with wanted to continue the program and felt like the school really needed it. That was definitely encouraging to us. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Tired of paying for ebooks? You can download the top titles for free with your library card. Visit the Pratt eLibrary today for the top fiction and nonfiction titles, even books for kids. The eLibrary is always open at prattlibrary.org. One last thing about the RAP program is sort of what is your hope for being able to reach back to the students that took that program? Is there like an idea of what you would like to do, you know, like five years from now, see how those students are doing 10 years from now and see if there was long lasting impact? I just think that would be so fascinating. Thanks for asking that. Actually, we are (laughs) hoping to do that. So we have a new grant that will allow us to reach back to all the young people who participated in that study and see if they want to continue working with us over another four years. We will also reach out to other young people who are not part of that study. And we're especially interested in looking at young people's mental health as they move into young adulthood or emerging adulthood. And in addition, really look at whether critical consciousness and activism are protective for youth mental health. That's so interesting. Like I always think about, like I think about meditation. It was my goal like a couple years ago to get better at meditating And I'm terrible at it. I just like, my mind wanders. I can't do it. But I do wonder if it was something that I learned at a really young age and it was like sort of embedded into schoolwork, the way mindfulness could be, if that would just become a regular practice in adulthood because you learned it as a child and it was just such a regular thing. So that's, it's it's so fascinating that you said that. So first of all, you're not bad at it if your mind wanders. That's the nature of minds, right? Where they wander. And I think a lot of people have that attitude that, well, there are these people that can do it and there are, you know, people who live as monks, but then I'm not like that in my mind. And I think part of mindfulness is getting familiar with 
how our minds work and how they run around. A lot of times mindfulness teachers will talk about minds being like little puppies, like you put them down and they're like running all over. And so there is some training of the mind involved, but part of that is just recognizing, oh, look, I wandered off again, or look, and really understanding that that's the nature of what's happening internally. And the more that we understand or sort of identify how our minds work, the more that instead of just getting carried away with the thoughts, we can watch that unfold. And it it actually changes our experience or our relationship with our own emotions in ways that can be really, really helpful. So I do think that starting from a young age would give young people a sense that this is something I can do. This is a way I can be in relationship to myself and learn how how my mind works and how I am going to choose to respond to these emotions and thoughts and things that I go through. It's such a powerful thing. I know our time is obviously short together, but I do want to address this because I think it's just um, so much for teens and kids right now, the impact that social media has had on the mental health of young people. What have you seen being an expert in this over so many years and you know social media just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger how have you seen that impacting young people yeah so we have seen increases in depression and anxiety for young people over the past decade or more and and a lot of you know it's been speculated it's not exactly proven in the data but there mm-hmm. is quite a lot of speculation that social media use could be in part responsible. And in particular, there's, you know, more and more data emerging about the way that girls react to social media and how it can fuel depressive thoughts and things like that. So I do think it's really important that we educate our young people about that and about sort of, there's so many different ways that you can be online, right? And there's some of them that may actually be good for mental health, but some that may not. And so I think the more young people understand how it can affect them, I think that can also just empower them to have, you know, to make choices. Sure. And I think the understanding that, you know, social media companies have the goal of keeping them on this site, you know, there's a business behind it that's Mm -hmm. not something sort of totally different than maybe Mm -hmm. um, the platform is for. Yes, absolutely. If I'm a parent of a teenager or a young person and I really want to help my child develop some of these mindfulness habits, what are some of the things, A, that I can look out for, for their mental health and B, like, what are some of those things that I can teach them and impart to them so that they grow up mentally healthy? That's a great question. I think one thing I would say is that parents themselves can practice mindfulness in their interactions with their children, just practicing being in the moment with it rather than, I I mean, I'm a parent of an 11-year-old and I'm guilty of this often of being, talking to her while I'm also checking my email or doing something else or, you know, kind of sort of rushing through something with her. But there are books about parenting of how to sort of actually really kind of ground yourself like, this is a moment I'm with my child. Let me notice this moment that can be helpful. And kids really thrive on our attention. So I think that's actually a starting point. Many times when we get frustrated that our kids are on devices too much, we're doing it even more and modeling that. So I think that's you know one starting place. There are also many apps and 
things online if parents want to introduce their children to a different way to use their online tools, right? There are books, there are programs. So there are many ways that parents, I think, can introduce that to their children. But at the most basic, just sitting still and kind of being in a state of what's sometimes called non-doing, just being, Mm -hmm. is something that can be helpful to model for kids and do with kids, just even just taking time to notice things. Noticing your breath is often a really common way to start, just sitting and breathing. Um, Sometimes in early practices, giving someone something little like a raisin and saying, just slow down, like notice everything you can about this raisin. And raisins are super weird when you really look at them for a long time, right? But, um, But just practicing slowing down and noticing stuff. And there, there are ways to do this with kids where it doesn't involve a lot of, you know, understanding Buddhism or anything like that. So I think there are a lot of ways parents can just sort of drop those little seeds. Sure. And I think it is so powerful because I, I think we look at the way even we spend our evenings, you're watching TV on your computer mm-hmm. and on your phone at the same time. And it's, I just uh, was, I've listened to another podcast and it was interviewing an author who was a doctor as well, who had done a study saying that adult attention span is only about three minutes long now. Mm. And it's just been going down and down. So like, how do you expect child to do the same thing when they're watching their parent do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I think that finding ways for children to have attention to something that's not digital is really important. And so spending time in nature is really great for that. Taking walks together, even doing activities where you get into a different kind of flow. So drawing, coloring, puzzles, like there are a lot of activities where the mind can settle into more sustained and focused attention. Mm -hmm. Our time is getting short. So I want to ask you uh, my final question. I've been asking a lot of people um, this year is what does a healing city look like to you? What is sort of the ideal goal of what a healing city could be? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a healing city is one where people can reach their full potential Mm -hmm. and where there's real trust and joy and connectedness and where we've overcome systemic racism. I mean, I think there's some big goals, but I think, you know, I think a lot about young people in this city and I've met so many just incredible young people who are rising leaders and they give me a lot of hope, you know, knowing that they're leading us forward. I feel like we can get there, you know, that we can heal. Yeah. When you talk to some of them, you feel like the future is in good hands. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Mendelson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me here. Don't let your children fall victim to the summer slide. The Pratt can help with free fun resources to keep your kids learning all summer long. From free eBooks to read-along videos, educational computer games, and online tutoring, the Pratt has it all to help your student make the grade. More details at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. 
you can follow The Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.